Okay, uh, hello everybody, welcome back to the seventh week. We're almost finished. <laughs> um, we're very excited to host today Dr. Maya Mark. So Dr. Maya Mark is a faculty member at the Institute for Israel Studies at Ben Gurion University. Um, her PhD analyzed Menachem Begin's legal and administrative worldview. And she also interned in the Israeli Supreme Court and was the legal assistant of the president of the Supreme Court, Esther Chayut, for those of you who know. Um, her research in general examines judicial, economic, and political history in Israel and the civil ideology of the political right in Israel. And we're very excited to host you today. Um, so as always, we'll have a 45-minute presentation and then we'll have about 45 minutes for questions and answers. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm very excited to be here and I wish to thank Professor Yadgar and um, Alexa Simon for inviting me and for their warm hospitality. Thank you. Um, I will uh, talk today about Menachem Begin's stand on the imposition of military government. But before I will actually start my talk, I would like to say a few words about why I think this is important. Uh, why is this an important historical um, episode? Um, so um, I will try to convince you today that this was a distinctive liberal campaign waged by the Israeli right for over a decade. And given that it was such a campaign, I believe it reflects on the ideological baggage of left and right in Israel in the second decade. Uh, so that's the first reason that I think this is uh, an important uh, story, historical story. Uh, secondly, I think it reflects on the ideological roots of the Israeli right. And thirdly, I think it's a very good starting point for any discussion on um, ideological um, shifts that played out in later periods in the Israeli right. So let's begin. How do I move the slides? Just mm -hmm. I press this. Okay. Yeah. So the military government over the Arab citizens of Israel was established several months after the founding of Israel, and it ended late at 1966. During this period, the Arab citizens of Israel endured severe restrictions on their freedom of movement, expulsion from their lands, widespread unemployment, economic hardship, and limitations on their political freedoms. Mapai, the ruling party, and particularly its leader, Israel's Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, supported an uncompromised position regarding the military government, arguing that it was a security necessity. I will focus, however, not on the position of the political left, but rather on the position of the Israeli political right, and particularly the Herut party. So Herut was founded in 1948 by Menachem Begin. It was a right-wing national liberal party committed by its own admission to both liberal and national values. Begin and his party lost the national elections eight times in a row until at 1977, after 30 years in opposition, Begin was nominated Israel's sixth prime minister. Okay. As a political party committed to both liberal and national values, the military government presented Herut with a profound ideological conflict. From a liberal perspective, one can find very few examples of a more severe violation of liberal principles 
than the one inflicted in a case of a military government imposed on civilians. At the same time, maintaining state security against existential threats in the midst of a total war for self-determination reflects the ultimate fulfillment of nationalism. The necessity to formulate a coherent policy regarding the military government confronted Herut with the con contradictions between the ideological foundation of its worldview, namely a strong commitment to both liberal and national values. It was under these extreme historical circumstances that Herut had to establish its policy regarding the military rule. The party struggled to reconcile its liberal and national values, leaving a fascinating documentation of this intellectual and political process. The ideological tension between liberal and national values was reflected in the party's position towards the military government during the first years of statehood. As early as 1949, <coughs> Yirmiyahu Halperin, head of Herut's Arab department, demanded to immediately remove the razor wire fences surrounding the Arab settlements, arguing that a policy that had served a purpose during wartime should no longer be imposed on civilians in a free country. One month later, the party's organ, Herut, devoted its editorial to this subject. It asserted that, that there was no justification for the continuation of the military government arguing that it is violating the principle of equality and has a harmful effect on the fabric of life of the population subjected to it. In practice, however, the parliament members of Herut took the view that while one should strive in principles to, to uphold the ideals of democracy and equality, there was an overriding obligation to protect national security. This orientation was reflected in the faction vote in the Knesset held in 1952. Although in opposition, the party voted in support of the government's position to maintain the military government. Herut's representatives considered the violation of the Arab citizens' human rights and expressed the party's disapproval of the imposition of the military government. However, they regarded this as a necessary outcome of the existing situation in light of state security needs. Begin himself rarely mentioned the military government during the first decade. And when he did express an opinion, he declared Herut's commitment to the principle of equality and regretted that under conditions of severe security threats and ongoing attacks on Jews within Israel's borders, it was not feasible to end the military government and to grant full and equal rights to Arab citizens but only to continue to pursue this aim. In general, such references were fairly sporadic during the course of Israel's formative years. Herut, like the other parties, with the exception of Maki, the Israeli Communist Party, and Mapam, a left-wing socialist party, considered the military government as a necessity dictated by the security situation, and the question of its annulment found no place on its agenda. The Sinai campaign in 1956 led to a certain turnabout in the security orientation regarding the military government. This turnabout was mostly a result of the improvement in Israel's strategic position as a result of the Sinai campaign, the uninvolvement of Arab citizens in hostile activity against the state during the fighting, 
and the establishment's realization that the presence of Arabs within Israel's borders was a fact. As the security necessity for the maintenance of the military government began to weaken, a gradual shift emerged in Herut's standpoint towards the military government. In December 1956, several weeks after the termination of the Sinai campaign, Herut took on the notion that its policy regarding the military government required a reassessment. As the government brought to the Knesset yet another bill constituting the extension of the military government, Herut's representatives loudly objected, arguing that Israel's security condition had significantly changed and a revision regarding the necessity of the military government was in order. The gradual shift in the party's position regarding the security necessity of the military government was evident in Begin's keynote speech delivered at the Herut Convention held in 1958. At this point, Begin had his sight on the elections to the fourth Knesset, Israeli parliament. He reached out to the Arab citizens from the convention podium, quoting a line from a poem by Zev Jabotinsky that capsulated to him the revisionist movement's vision regarding equality and the distribution of the country's resources between Jews and Arabs. In it will dwell, in wealth and joy, the son of Arabia, the son of Nazareth, and my son. Begin declared that the principle of equality was a fundamental tenet of Herut's worldview, which the military government violated and accused Mapai of exploiting the military government for its political and party ends. Nevertheless, he conceded that there were valid security considerations that necessitate, necessitated the retention of the military government, and that in an overall assessment, the matter of national security was superior. While declaring himself unable to commit to ending the military government, Begin pledged that were Herut to win the election, it would conduct a thorough investigation to determine whether the measure was still necessary on security grounds and vowed never to use it to serve party ends. These remarks reflect the complexity of Begin's position and are far removed from a classic election promise. As we shall see, they reveal the process whereby the party was slowly shifting its position on the military government at that time. Several months later, and only a few weeks prior to the general elections, a broad front united <clears throat> in the Knesset around the issue of the military government, with five parties submitting, submitting bills for its annulment. Herut was not among them. Instead, the party's representatives protested against the timing of the discussion, arguing that the Knesset should not begin to discuss so serious and important as is an issue just a few days prior to its dispersal. Proposal, proposal raised at such a time were inevitably tainted by electoral considerations, Herut claimed. How was it possible, they wondered, that granting freedom of movement to the Arab citizens, which had been considered to be dangerous for 11 years, had suddenly become harmless before the elections? The question was not left hanging in the air. 
חירות accusations that מפאי had turned national security into a negotiable commodity provided the answer. Finally, חירות argued that a week is an irrelevant time frame for a bill to pass all the necessary stages of legislation procedure, and therefore it is clear that this is nothing more than an attempt to gain popularity with the Arab voters prior to the elections. Upon conclusion of the discussion, the proposals were passed to the Legislation Committee, a decision supported by a majority of 41 Parliament members and with no opposing votes. Members of both Mapai and Kherut abstained. The former, after realizing they had lost their majority, <coughs> sorry, and the latter, in protest at what they described as a cynical and irresponsible political move on a fateful issue. So, the question must be asked, was Kherut's position on the vote an attempt to evade a decision or a genuine refusal to cooperate with a course of action that is perceived as being populist? The answer to this question soon presented itself. As Begin has predicted, time constraints prevented any operational outcomes to this move, and the third Knesset dispersed without holding further discussions on the matter. At the opening session of the new Knesset, Begin devoted much of his speech, delivered as leader of the opposition, to the issue of the military government. He pointed to serious misconduct on the part of the military government authorities during the election campaign, citing unjustified use of force against Arab citizens, nighttime raids intended to generate fear, and attempts to prevent Arab citizens from receiving notifications from the Central ele ele Election Committee affirming the right to vote freely. Begin announced that based on its commitment to equal rights for all citizens, Kherut intended to formulate a bill proposing the dismantling of the military government. He expressed the hope that all the Knesset factions that had lent their support for such a move prior to the elections would now prove that they had been guided by substantive rather than political considerations by supporting the proposal. At the beginning of 1960, and in line with its earlier commitment, Kherut submitted a bill proposing the annulment of the military government. The bill failed to gain a majority in the Knesset and was rejected. Kherut nevertheless preserved with its parliamentary campaign on this issue. And when the fifth Knesset convened in February 1962, it once again submitted a bill that was again rejected. One year later, Kherut submitted yet another bill which was rejected, this time by a majority of only one vote. Throughout this entire period, and up to the final dismantling of the military government, Kherut and Begin in particular, never lost sight of this issue. It can therefore be concluded that during the first years of statehood, Kherut decided to give priority to what it considered to be the current security interests of the state. Even though the party's senior leadership consistently promoted a liberal and democratic ethos, it repeatedly stressed that security considerations took precedence. 
The shift in the party's position towards the end of the 50s sorry, resulted from its assessment that the military government no longer served a security function and should therefore be terminated. This position was repeatedly affirmed by Begin. If we knew that ending the military government would cause the shedding of one drop of a Jewish child's blood, we would agree to impose two military governments. But we were convinced that the military government was utterly unconnected to security. No connection at all. And we demand equal rights. While the struggle to overturn the military government was waged by the party as a whole, Menachem Begin was its most prominent spokesman. And it was he who spearheaded the campaign and public discourse surrounding it. The range of Begin's pro prolific activities in the service of this cause, including raising the topic in opinion articles, parliamentary debates, election rallies, party forums, and private letters, paints a picture of a consistent, determined, and well-orchestrated campaign. Underlying Begin's struggle to abolish the military government was a democratic outlook, which ruled out military control over civilians as a matter of principle. It is a golden rule that soldiers should not, and certainly not for extended periods, control, supervise, or regulate civilian matters, Begin repeatedly asserted. In his view, the use of the military to oversee, rule over, or judge civilians constitute an abuse of the power of government and a violation of fundamental democratic principles. In a speech he made in the Knesset in 1962, he furthermore stressed, there is not a single member of this house who would argue in favor of a military supervision over civilians. I am certain that the entire Knesset could unanimously sorry, agree that army commanders should be in charge of soldiers and citizens should be in charge of citizens. This is the golden rule in a free country. The second fundamental principle underlying Begin's drive to abolish military government was rooted in the liberal notion of equality. Chirut's commitment to the principle of equality lay at the heart of Begin's statements on the military government and constitute the ideological linchpin supporting the call for its annulment. We solemnly believe in the principle of equal rights for all, Begin declared repeatedly. In the Jewish state, there should, there should and will be equal rights for all citizens, irrespective of religion, nationality, or ethnic origin, he stated. During an election rally held in Tel Aviv, he addressed the Jewish audience, reaffirming his commitment to equal rights for the Arab citizens of Israel. It is not in Nazareth, Yalka, or Tira, they're all Arab settlements in Israel, but it is in the heart of Tel Aviv that I wish to declare that the national movement in Israel believes in equal rights between all citizens. We shall not speak to the citizens of our country in two languages. There is only one language of truth. In these statements and others, Begin repeatedly stressed the commitment of equality 
as a foundational principle of Kharut's ideological credo. He presented the campaign for the lifting of the military government as a con concrete manifestation of a broadly liberal worldview, which constitute the party's ideological foundations. Interestingly, while commitment to the principle of equality, derived from the universal discourse of human rights and rooted in the liberal tradition, Begin believed that this commitment was drawn also from Jewish tradition. The existence for a lengthy or unlimited period of time of military government runs contrary to the principle of equal civil rights. We did not need to acquire this knowledge from the beliefs of the 19th or the 20th century. We received it before all other nations on the day we became a people in the simplest yet all-encompassing precept, which is engraved on our hearts. One law you shall have for the foreigner and for the native-born alike. Begin frequently referred to this basic idea when speaking of the military government, often quoting maxims from Jewish sources, such as justice, justice shall you pursue, or you were a stranger in the land of Egypt, calling them foundational principles in the world view of a national movement that loves its people and does not hate other peoples. The obligation to equality and fair treatment of the Arab minority derived, according to him, from these Jewish injunctions. These vast ideological manifestos reflect Begin's belief that the nationalist right-wing party could be committed to equality and fight for the civil rights of a national minority. So, after considering the ideological aspects of Kherut's campaign to abolish the military government, it should also be analyzed within its broad historical and political context. And over the years, Begin fiercely rebuffed the accusation that Kherut's campaign against the military government was politically motivated, consistently maintaining that the party's decisions on this matter were dictated by ideals and principles. We would not propose anything that is not, in our view, just or right, because we feared losing votes, nor would we abandon anything which, in our opinion, is just or right for fear of losing votes. Nevertheless, the benefits that Kherut derived from its campaign to abolish the military government cannot be ignored. Thus, Kherut's venture to abolish the military government must also be also be scrutinized within the broader context of the rivalry between Mapai and Kherut. This rivalry dated back to the 20s when the two stream of, streams of Zionism, namely the labor movement and the revisionist movement, struggled for ideological and political supremacy. This rivalry deepened in later years as Begin became head of the Etzel underground leading a violent rebellion against the government of the British Mandate in Palestine, undermining the opposing policy led by David Ben-Gurion. The struggle continued well into statehood, as Begin led a fierce opposition against Ben-Gurion and Mapai on various issues. Kherut's campaign to abolish the military government must therefore be analyzed in this broad context. 
So the military government was initially driven by security considerations and fears concerning the Arab citizens' involvement in hostile activities and future war. However, its political and economic usefulness to the government, and particularly to Mapai, became increasingly apparent over time. The military government enabled to confiscate lands, to manipulate the Arab public <coughs> voting behavior, and to stifle any attempt at independent political organization. Considering this political context, one should stress that an <clears throat> annulment of the military government would weaken a significant electoral advantage Mopai enjoyed. However, would the annulment of the military government have profited Khirut electorally? As far as direct benefits were concerned, the answer is probably no. Khirut enjoyed only a tiny percentage of Arab votes. It was extremely unlikely that Arab citizens would vote for a homogeneous Jewish nationalist party that had, as a rule, no Arab representation and was positioned on the extreme right of the spectrum. The Arab electorate at that time appeared to be farther removed from Khirut than perhaps any other body of voters. And Khirut doubtless did not believe that removing the obstacle of military government would result in the horde of Arab voters moving to support the party. Nevertheless, even though Khirut did not foresee a direct electoral advantage, it certainly could have expected to profit indirectly. Ending Mapai's domination or, over the Arab citizens would have eroded the Arab's strong electoral support for Mapai's satellite Arab parties and thus weakened its power in any future coalition. This would have presented a significant political gain to Khirut. The electoral dimension, then, cannot be overlooked in an anal analysis of the motives that drove Khirut to campaign for the abolishing of the military government. A second and significant political gain that Khirut drew from the campaign to abolish the military government was the opportunity to fiercely criticize Mapai for close to a decade. Khirut's allegations against Mapai were many, violating the principle of equality, infringing civil rights, undermining Israel's democracy, and bargaining with national security. Over all these accusations stood the ultimate claim that equality, democracy, and state security were all being sacrificed by Mapai on the altar of political expediency. In June 1963, Ben-Gurion resigned his position as prime minister, and Levi Eshkol was chosen to succeed him. Four months after Eshkol took office, the new prime minister's announcement in the Knesset of his intention to make a significant reduction in the scale of the military government marked the beginning of the end of the military government. After the elections for the sixth Knesset in November 1965, Eshkol declared his intention to end the military government, and in late 1966, he announced its annulment, effective as of the 1st of December 1966. <clears throat> Eshkol's announcement of his intention to annul the military government provided further validation of Khirut's long-standing claim. Mapai's stalling was, was shown to be irresponsible and driven by questionable motives. 
In response to Eshkol announcement, Begin argued that as nothing has, had changed in the balance of power or in the political climate of the Middle East, the military government could have been abolished years beforehand when Herut had called for it. All that had changed, Begin stressed, was Mopai's change of leadership, and this, rather than any substantive security-related consideration, explained the policy reversal. So as I mentioned before, Begin was the prominent, prominent speaker for the cause. However, not everyone in his party shared his view. This is not a popular matter with our public, and it will harm us. One of Herut's faction members warned Begin at one of their meetings. And indeed, Begin's personal archives are filled with letters from members of the movement protesting that they considered to be a deviation from the movement's path and criticizing Begin for his position on the military government. Begin had the same reply for everyone. Herut's position on the military government was derived from its principles and did not deviate from them. Herut's, pos Herut's position on the issue of the Arab minority and equal rights is not extreme, but rather national and patriotic, he argued. In July 1961, for example, he replied as follows to a letter sent to him. The war we fought in the past against those who wish to eliminate us doesn't mean we should hate Arabs. The citizens of your country are entitled to equal rights and we must do our utmost to put our beliefs into practice. In another letter, he replied to yet another angry petition, protesting against the party's policy regarding the military government. We must do our utmost to put our beliefs into practice. Thus, our position on the military government which has consistently been very judicious, far from contradicting our principles, and in fact, stems from them. Begin pursued the movement's policy on this issue with great determination, even in the face of criticism from member, members of the faction who disagreed with his position. For instance, in early 1964, the Arab party sought to to table a motion concerning allegations made by residents living under the military government regarding restrictions on the freedom of movement. Some of Herut faction members felt that they should oppose the, the motion or at least abstain, but Begin thought otherwise. We should not shut our ears to the request for an investigation, he argued. He urged his, his colleagues. Indeed, Begin and Herut were more vulnerable to internal criticism than its campaign partners on the left side of the political map. However, the political price of the campaign came not only from within the party, but from outside as well. The fierce campaign waged against the military government enabled external attacks on begging patriotism and commitment to state security. Herut's campaign lumped it together with ideologically remote parties such as Maki, the Communist Party, which was a vocal objector to the military government. Mapai, for its part, took advantage of Herut's position on this issue to drive home a narrative connecting Maki and Herut and to spread propaganda materials accusing Herut of compromising national security. In this sense, the campaign against the military government 
took a toll on Begin's major political undertaking during this period, namely the rehabilitation of Herut's public, public image and its establishment as a moderate and patriotic party. During that period, Herut underwent certain transformation, a gradual shift towards the political consensus, gaining in, in institutional legitimacy and establishing itself as a viable alternative to the existing government. During the second decade of statehood, Begin devoted considerable effort to cultivate his image as a patriotic, responsible, and statesman-like national leader. This image stood in sharp contrast to that of the radical revolutionary that had adhered him since his days as the leader of the Etzel, and which had become ingrained in the public consciousness following his militant standpoints with regard to several controversial public affairs in the first decade. Although this vast political project was to some extent damaged by the campaign to abolish the military government, Beckin's position remained unshaken. We shall vote with any faction, without exception, on issues we consider to be beneficial to our people. Begin declared after Herut once again found itself on the same side as Maki and Mapam in a vote on the issue of the military government in February 1963. While rejecting the criticism, Begin continued to express his belief in the moral correctness of the cause. <coughs> Some say that our position is not popular. It may be so. The opposition, which does not possess the power of a government, is naturally concerned with the popularity of its decisions. However, public morality should never be determined by the question of popularity. Our battle is above everything else a moral one. The lack of popularity will not deter us from continuing to fight it. Our position is just and based on both national security and national morality. We shall not back down. It is apparent, therefore, that Begin and his party bore the brunt of external and internal criticism as a result of their position on the military government. How we have been bombarded both within and without. I have received dozens of letters Begin admitted in his speech at the 8th Herut Convention in 1966, by which time the campaign had in effect run its course. So ideology or politics. So the analysis so far shows that Herut derived significant benefits by campaigning for the annulment of the military government, the most important of which was the erosion of Mopai's electoral advantage. Moreover, from the moment that Herut placed the issue of the military government on its agenda, Herut members of the Knesset fiercely criticized Mopai's handling of the situation, thereby scoring on a number of points in the debate. However, although Herut derived certain benefits by campaigning for the annulment of the military government, the campaign also came at a political price both from within the party and from the outside. Moreover, it's important to establish that the political rivalry between Mopai and Herut cannot constitute the sole motive that drove Herut to commence this campaign. 
This rivalry did not begin in the second decade and was, if anything, more pronounced during the first decade. For had this been its principal motivation, Herut could have launched its campaign for the annulment of the military government far earlier. However, not only did Herut neglect to do so, but during the first decade it actually voted with Mapai to maintain military government, demonstrating that its decision on this issue consistently derived from a, gen a genuine assessment of the security. Hence, even if political rivalry between the two parties played a role in Herut's campaign to end the military government, it was not a decisive factor. Thirdly, Herut's campaign to abolish the military government was one of many liberal campaigns and struggles led by the party during the first two decades. So the analysis of Herut's campaign to annul the military government provides, I believe, far-reaching insights that far exceeds the parameters of the campaign itself. So firstly, I think it is an important chapter in the history of the ideological and political rivalry between Mapai and Herut, left and right, in Israel. Secondly, the argument over the issue of the military government reflects on the ideological baggage and political perceptions of the Israeli left and right during the second decade of statehood. One cannot overlook the considerable energy devoted by the Israeli right to demonstrating its patriotism and convincing the public that it is more than match the patriotism of the left. Moreover, Herut sought to instill the narrative in the public's consciousness that identified the struggle for civil rights with the ideological right, no less than with the ideological left. Even when the campaign came under fire from within the right-wing camp, Begin continued <clears throat> to regard this commitment, and this is the, the, the crux of the matter, as a natural outcome of the worldview held by the movement and the principle upon, upon which it was founded. Thirdly, an analysis of Herut's campaign to lift military government illuminates the liberal ideological foundations of the movement that has held sway in Israel for over four decades. My analysis has sought to uncover those elements of the campaign that lay beneath the surface and were linked to broader political and historical processes. However, this should not be allowed to obscure the major element of the campaign an unmistakable, ideological, and over, waged by a committed movement whose leaders, whose leaders sought to instill liberal values and a democratic worldview in the minds of his supporters. Ultimately, it could be argued that the overriding significance of this campaign to another military government can perhaps be found in the public, educational, and ideological realms. For close on a decade, the essential call to dismantle the military government over the Arab citizens of Israel appeared on Herut's platform, and throughout those years, the movement's <clears throat> executive body and its leader articulated their position clearly, placing this demand squarely on its agenda. Begin preached empathically and explicitly for equality, liberty, and democracy at every opportunity. This important historical chapter constitute the legacy of a doctrine explicitly held by Israel's hegemonic party in the last four decades, 
affirming its, affirming its commitment to liberal values and the belief of its founding father begging in civic, civic equality between Jews and Arabs in Israel. The campaign for the annulment of the military government reflects a venture, implement liberal values through the process of decision-making and policy formulation during a period in which the revisionist movement upheld it as a principal component, component of its worldview that shaped its political and public agenda. Given that this was a distinctly liberal campaign conducted by Herut and driven by a profound commit commitment to equal civil rights for the Arab minority, it provides an important perspective on the fundamental principles of political thought on Israel's right. In this sense, it lays a foundation for future research on ideological shifts within the Israeli right that played out in later periods. Thank you.